Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I'm Kieran Mulvaney and the Olympic Games are underway, which gives me and many others at my quadrennial or quadrennial-ish these days, I guess, opportunity to become briefly and oddly obsessed with sports I would never normally even think about. Uh, I remember during the 2012 Games, I was in Alaska and uh, a friend of mine and I, for some reason, just could not wait for the daily rhythmic gymnastic highlights. Never watched a minute of rhythmic gymnastics since, but there you go. <laughs> and, and then there was, I think, the following Winter Olympics I was in, Montreal and could not pull myself away from the TV in the hotel lobby, which had curling on all the time. Mm. Amazingly fascinated by that. <laughs> um, but the other thing with the Olympics, like there are sports I had no idea even existed, uh, like beach handball. What the hell is beach handball? I, I'm barely aware of non-beach handball. But, but anyway, of course, the reason that beach handball has been in the news is that the Norwegian women's team uh, was fined because they refused to wear bikini bottoms and wanted to wear like normal athletic attire. And boy, Eric, does that ever bring me back to the struggles you and I had in our early days to be taken seriously as podcasters and not just pretty boys to be lusted <laughs> over. Yes. Only the early days? <laughs> not continuing? <laughs> well, the, 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 yeah, the, str the struggle is real and it continues. Yes. <laughs> um... First of all, uh, I'll respond by noting that uh, no matter how boring my life is or how little is going on and available to watch, I never found curling fascinating enough to stick with for more than 30 seconds. Oh, really? uh, that, that's one I could never get into. But um, yeah, as far as the uh, bikini bottoms, uh, I'll just say thank goodness for this Zoom era where when we're interviewing someone, our guests only ever see me from mid-torso up because I, I do right. prefer to podcast in a banana hammock. Um, but, you know, that's a that's a personal choice. Uh, and uh, you should not be able to force athletes to wear something so skimpy that it makes Sorry. them uncomfortable. Uh, you know, like a bodybuilding competition? Sure. You know, showing all the muscles and the body parts is required to judge the competition. But beach handball uh i saw the spandex shorts that they've chosen to wear instead it looks perfectly comfortable for competing in so uh yeah but then again i kind of like it when another sports governing body does something stupid <laughs> and, and proves <laughs> yeah. itself to be way behind yes. the times it makes me feel a tiny bit better about boxing oh that is yes indeed <laughs> so that's very good point. Um, all right, look, this week on the podcast, as you can probably already tell, it's somewhat of a slow week in the professional boxing world, but not so in amateur boxing, because, as we've mentioned, the Olympics are indeed underway. So we will be welcoming to the show a former Olympian, a silver medalist, in fact, and an old friend, uh, but someone who is surprisingly we've never had on a podcast. Yeah, Wayne McCulloch will be our guest, and he'll be coming up shortly. We'll also talk about news surrounding the possible next fights for boxing's consensus top two pound-for-pound -pound fighters, Canelo Alvarez and Terence Crawford. Eric will give me my next top five list assignment. Uh, but first, coming off a three-podcast week in which we celebrated the 20th anniversary of Showbox. Let's talk about the 20th anniversary card that took place Friday night in Grand Island, Nebraska, a triple header featuring trademark tough showbox matchmaking. As all three fights went the distance, 
And all three were somewhat close competitive bouts. Yeah, exactly how close some of them were is up for debate, and there was one significant judging controversy, which we'll discuss shortly. Uh, But first, the super middleweight main event, which I thought the judges nailed, uh, as Isaiah Z. Wapstein boxed his way to a unanimous decision over Calvin Hot Sauce Henderson by scores of 96-94 and 97-93 twice. Uh, Steen, the 24-year-old half-brother of Charles Conwell, remains unbeaten, moving to 16-0 with 12 KOs, while the 31-year-old Henderson falls to 14-1-2 with 10 knockouts. I'll get the important subplot out of the way right now. Kieran, you predicted a unanimous decision win for Steen, whereas I picked a late KO, so you get the maximum three points to my one point, and you have retaken the lead in our picks competition, 48-47. You did so on the strength of Steen boxing behind his jab, trying to maintain distance, moving a lot. And Henderson, uh, with the exception of an exciting round three, just couldn't drag him into a fight. Hot Sauce said afterward that he injured his shoulder in round four. Uh, It's hard to say if that accounts for the difference on the cards, but I had it 97-93, like two of the judges. Though there were several close rounds, uh, the punch stats were just about even in the end. Could have seen a draw here, but in the end, I think the right guy got it. Kieran, how did you score it? And how do you rate Steen as a prospect coming off his first 10-rounder and the stiffest test of his young career? Yeah, I scored it the same, but it's one of those fights I was very glad not to actually be scoring for real. Like, I felt comfortable looking at the the, the fight in its entirety that Steen was the winner, but I wasn't entirely comfortable with some of my round-by-round scoring. Uh, There were, like you said, some very close rounds in there. But overall, I like Steen's speed, his movement. Uh, the fact he appeared to have a game plan and was able to execute it, whereas, like you said, you know, Henderson just couldn't really get going with his. I guess to some extent, to a large extent, this is the kind of fight I expected. I mean, I think the one question mark going in was whether um, Henderson could get his jab going and make that an effective weapon because so much of his offense, based on what I had seen, the limited amount that I'd seen of him beforehand, um, seemed to come from that. But in the event, as you alluded to, Steens was the better jab. Um, yeah. I thought he deployed it more judiciously. Uh, it made it to the target and back more swiftly. And he used it to set up combinations more effectively. And um, yeah, and look, clearly it isn't going to help if you can't throw your right hand. Um, you know, like I said, even though Henderson has been generally, from what I've seen, a, a pretty jab-centric offense, for that to work, your opponent has to at least be thinking about the possibility of some other punches coming his way. So, uh, so yeah, so that injury can't possibly have helped him. But this is one of those defeats, I thought, after which, you know, Calvin Henderson should not be expected to slink away. This was just one of those fights where you learn. Um and it's a loss and you come back. I, I don't know, as we discussed last week, that Calvin Henderson's upside is particularly high, right. but he's clearly capable. And, and I think he's a good measuring stick and, and he will hopefully learn from this. And as for Steen, I liked him. I didn't necessarily love him. Right. Um, right? I, I've seen prospects on Showbox before who have immediately, you know, you and I have come on this podcast afterwards and gone, holy crap, this kid's got some real potential. I didn't feel that from Steen. I, I, do I think he's likely to be on the highlight reel for Showbox's 40th anniversary? <laughs> uh, probably not. But, you know, like you said, it's still early in his professional career. He's, he's still young. He does look technically good and relaxed. Um, the ridiculously extensive amateur experience, you know, shows he's, he's pretty comfortable in the ring. Um, I'd enjoy seeing him again. I am curious to see how far he can go. Um, and I suspect on the back of this, we will see him back on Showbox. And 
yeah, I'm, I'd, I'd be more than fine with that. I'm curious to see how far he can go. Yeah, he was a bit cautious for my taste, but kind of doing what he needed to do to win. Yeah. And this could be a fight that he learns from and, and grows from having gone uh, 10 close rounds here. And, uh, and in terms of learning from this, I'm also hoping that Steen and his team learned a lesson about managing his hair bun and maybe taping yes. it all off pre-fight yes. next time. Yeah, I uh, flashes of David Lemieux, like with a very different sort of hair arrangement. But I remember us talking about it in one podcast that it was it's very distracting. If, you, if you're going to get hit a lot, as he was, mm -hmm. I think it was probably the Golovkin fight. Like, don't be wearing hair that's flopping around because it's just going to remind people of, uh, of exactly how much you're getting hit. But, yeah, uh, Chris Bird, I remember, commented on that one time after as he was like kind of growing his hair out. He had a fight that maybe it was against Freza Kendo. I'm not sure, but that he felt like he hurt himself a bit in the scoring by having mm. hair that made it obvious every time his opponent landed something. Yeah, yep, indeed. Uh, this is, again, the analysis you won't get anywhere else. <laughs> High-level uh, stuff here. High-level stuff. Um, the co-feature gave us that judging controversy reference a few minutes ago. Uh, it was a clash of 22-year-old welterweight prospects, little-known Chenard Bunch facing Showbox regular... Um, You've got to help me with the name here. I, I can never quite get it right. What it was about. Uh, I don't know if I can say it with my you usual don't flair. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just say it straight. Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica. Oh, no. <laughs> um, the result was a 10-round draw. Uh, one judge had Bunch ahead 97-93. Another favored Boca Chica 96-94. The third scored at 95-95. Boca Chica remains undefeated at 17-0-1, while Bunch's record is now 15-1-1. Uh, Bunch flashed a head-snapping jab all night for a patient, measured fight. Boca Chica allowed that slow pace. Um... I didn't see it quite as widely in Bunch's favor as some folks on the interwebs or as our friends ringside, but even giving Boca Chica the benefit of every doubt in the closest rounds, I still had Bunch winning 96-94, and I feel that I, I just don't know why I'm not sure you could get one more round for, for Boca Chica let alone two I'd be more comfortable with somebody coming back at me and saying they had it 97 93 or 98 92 for Bunch than a couple of rounds the other way for Boca Chica but um what did you think of that draw decision and well I, I was going to ask you this question but I think we already know the answer is is we heard you excitedly pronounce the name Jenelson and Figueroa Boca Chica your trademark <laughs> style for the last time uh, well, you know, never say never uh, on that. But 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 for the moment, it is hard to say it with excitement. It's still a beautiful name, but it is. I, I can't say it in that Kramer-esque voice uh, right now. This was such a flat, disappointing yeah. performance from uh, from JFB. How about I call? I'll, I'll go there initials go. for him. Um, and um, you know, I don't like to throw the R word around in a close fight, but. I'll use it here. To me, this was a robbery. Um, I, I think Bunch got robbed. Uh, I had it 97-93 okay. for Bunch, uh, which doesn't sound totally dominant, but it was clear cut to me. Uh, there's no way in hell Boca Chica won that fight, and even getting to 95-95 requires a fair bit of bending over backward, as you said. Um, this result pissed me off. It really did. Mm -hmm. um, granted, a draw on Bunch's record isn't as bad as a loss, but... He deserved a win. Uh, and, and more to the point, Boca Chica deserved a loss. Uh, yes. He, he didn't let his hands go, didn't fight with urgency down the stretch when he needed to, and really doesn't deserve to be undefeated right now. Bunch's jab was the story of the fight. It was landing so flush, snapping Boca Chica's head back round after round, and Boca Chica didn't do anything to change the story of the fight from it being that jab. It was a dull fight, which was exactly mm -hmm. what Bunch wanted. 
Boca Chica seemed to be stepping up the pace and figuring some things out in rounds 7 and 8. And had he kept that going in rounds 9 and 10, I would have been fine with the draw, or or maybe even a 6-4 Boca Chica win if he'd finished strong. But Bunch fought a great ninth round, really dominated it, and for me, that clinched the fight. And then JFB got nothing done in round 10 either. Uh, Boca Chica has gotten worse each time we've seen him on Showbox. That's not a good trend. Um, Now, he, he is only 22, so I don't want to write him off, but... It sure is looking like he's found his level. Uh, but, hey, prove me wrong, JFB. Come back with a great win, and I will get back to <laughs> pronouncing your name the way it's meant to be pronounced. There you go. <laughs> um, so the show opened with an eight-rounder at featherweight between Martino Jules and Aram Avagian, both of whom were 10-0-2 coming in. But it's the Southpaw Jules who remains undefeated after winning a unanimous decision by scores of 77-74, 78-73, and 79-72. This was a clash of opposite styles, Jules boxing and Avagian mauling and getting several warnings, but never quite losing a point for rough tactics. The key point that he did lose came with about a minute left in the fight, a counter left hand from Jules dropping Avagian and providing separation in what on my scorecard had been about an even fight to that point. Kieran, were we able to learn much about Martino Jules's potential to graduate from showbox to serious contender in this tough fight against the ugly style of Avagian? So first of all, I, I saw a wider fight than our friends on the call. And, and by okay. the sounds of it, maybe you as well. I, I had Jules winning six rounds to two, 78, 73. Okay. Um, I, I thought that much of the time, even though Avagian was mauling him and, and throwing punches, I thought that Jules was landing the cleaner combinations, especially when he was able to get that, just that half step of separation. Um, but also on the inside, I liked the way that he was able to pivot at times, Jules, and reset. I did like his footwork. Um, what he didn't do or wasn't able to do was control the ring space. Avagian set the tone and type of the fight from the beginning, and Jules was reacting to that. But I guess given that he clearly doesn't have a great deal of power, that isn't necessarily a surprise. He just simply wasn't able to keep Avagian off him very well, except to some extent in the first couple of rounds. And then I thought, especially again in round six, when one round where I thought he really controlled the ring and the distance and the pace, um, it helped him, I think, that Avagian made a point of getting himself up close and then mostly smothering himself when we got there, which is, we've seen him do that before, of course. Um, I also don't think Avagian was especially helped. I don't know how much he was hindered, but he wasn't especially helped by Mark Nelson, who's a good referee, but was getting a little over-officious in there. And mm. honestly, I just got the impression as the fight went on, he just didn't like Avagian very much, <laughs> or the way he fought. He reminded me on a smaller scale a little bit of when Steve Smoger just took a dislike to Caro Murat when Murat fought Bernard Hopkins. Right. Remember that? And in both cases, the referee's gripes are legitimate. But uh, I don't know. I thought it was a little bit over the top there. Um, anyway, look, I thought Jules deserved the win, obviously. As for how good he can or will be, uh, can't say. I think... Avagian's just an awfully hard opponent to face if you want people to to judge you. You know, he's just a pain in the ass of a guy to fight. It's, you know, it's just difficult to get a sense of who somebody is based on them fighting somebody like Avagian. I would like to see Jules back on the showbox against a more conventional kind of opponent. Uh, His power is is limited and the guys on the call mentioned that you know that might have been it might be the fact that he's had hand injuries in the past or whatever um but he did like you said was able to steer Avagian into that that nice left hand that that dropped him but without some kind of power I'm not sure if he'll ever truly break through to the top but he kind of looks like he might be the goods he kind of carries himself in that kind of way and Mm -hmm. and I did like the way he moved around the 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 ring so again um 
you know, as with uh, as with our main event, I'll be uh, I'll be happy to see him again if Gordon brings him back. Yeah. So the showbox card was the principal one over here in these here United States, but there was also a big fight in that our United Kingdom, a literally big one, as Joe Joyce stopped a veteran Carlos Takam in the sixth round of their heavyweight contest at the Wembley Arena. It was Joyce's first fight since defeating Daniel Dubois last November, and honestly. Just watching that final round, which was all about Joyce's finishing flurry, you can see all that's good and less good about Joyce. He, he is robotic. He's stiff. He doesn't talk his punches. His footwork is awful at times, but he's tough as take. His punches are like sledgehammers. He's kind of like a Terminator in there and that he just keeps coming and keeps coming. Um, Takam, who was ahead on the scorecards, protested the stoppage, but... That takes some doing after you've been batted around the ring for 50 seconds without throwing a single punch. But, you know, there you go. Uh, Takam falls to 39-6-1 with 28 KOs. Joyce moves to 13-0 with 12 KOs. Uh, Eric, on the back of this, who would you like to see Joe Joyce fight next? Well, first I'll say I think uh, it's a bit of fake news to say he didn't throw a single punch. I counted two that he threw Ah, during that whole finishing attack. So there there you go. And... In terms of uh, the stoppage, uh, you know, certainly no, you can't scream bad stoppage when a guy takes that many shots and has been wobbled and knocked backward a couple of times. But I will acknowledge that Takam did still seem to have his wits about him. Mm. And it's fair to wonder if Joyce was close to punching himself out and, and what might have happened if the ref had let it go on. But still, again, no no real complaints about the stoppage from my end. Um, and, and you're certainly right that the best and worst of Joyce was all on display in that finish and in this fight. Man, his chin is something else. Yes. If he gets to the top of the heavyweight mountain, it will be his chin that carries him there. Um, so you asked who I would like to see him fight next. Now, Joyce wants the AJ Usyk winner and might end up with an alphabet mandate. But the world wants the winner of that fight to face sure. the winner of Fury Wilder 3. And, and Joe Joyce shouldn't be the one to hold that up. So I'm looking for someone outside that big four for Joyce to fight in the meantime. There are quite a few good options. Um, First off, I'm not opposed to a Daniel Dubois rematch, although I don't see the point in that for Joyce's career progression right now. Probably doesn't make a lot of sense for him. Probably my top choice would be Dillian White. That is just Mm. a really good all-British showdown right there. Um, But also, Luis Ortiz could be a good one. You know, catch Ortiz before he turns 60 next week. Um, (laughs) Andy Ruiz would be a very interesting test. Mm. Good clash of styles there. Otto Valin, too. That's a good 50-50-ish fight, if you ask me. The heavyweight division is surprisingly deep right now with guys right around the level that I think Joe Joyce is on. And I think if he beats any one of those guys that I just named, there's some real clamor for him to be in the mix to face a Fury or a Joshua if they don't get a deal done to face each other. Um, But yeah, ultimately, I will go with Dillian White as my top choice right now. Nice. I would. Yes, that would be one hell of a fight. Um, All right. For obvious reasons, the glitz, glamour, and crowds that we normally associate with the event are missing this year. But the Olympic Games, as we've mentioned, are underway in Tokyo. And our guest this week is a man who knows all about them, as he's competed in the Olympics twice, winning a silver medal in Barcelona in 1992. He was born and raised in Belfast, Northern Ireland, at the height of the Troubles, in the shadow of the peace wall that separated Protestant Shankill Road from the Catholic Falls Road. Uh, After turning pro under the guidance of the great Eddie Futch, he won a bantamweight world title the hard way by beating Japan's Yasui Yakushiji in Japan. Uh, in addition, he's the first boxer I ever interviewed. And much more importantly, 
He's a fan of Liverpool Football Club. Yes, it's my good friend, Wayne Pocket Rocket McCulloch. Wayne, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Um, so, yeah, so as I mentioned, you were a two-time Olympian. And in 1988, at your first Olympics, I think you were just 18. Yeah. And you had what I've always imagined must be the greatest thrill that an athlete could have. You, you were the flag bearer for Ireland during the opening ceremony. What was that experience like? Well, first, I was 17 when I qualified for the year, and, um, and I just turned 18 come, come the Olympics. Because the Olympics were like in September, October of that year. I turned um, 18 in July. But I was the youngest member of the team, and the, the, our, pres- our, our manager guy said to me, would you want to carry the flag? I'm like, yeah. He said, look, well, think about it, think about it, think about it, because where I came from and stuff. He said, think about it. I'm like, well, there's really nothing to think about. And, and I'm an, it's an honor to fight for the country and it's, to carry the flags is the biggest honor you can get. So I carried it just 18 years old, walking in the Olympic Stadium in front of 2 billion people around the world. So it was an amazing feeling. Same like yesterday, it really does. does it? Oh, I, was, I was about five foot four, I weighed 105 pounds, so I'm wet. And um, I was a kid, couldn't even grow a hair on my chin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned it like, you know, he said, think about it because of where you were from. And folks, some people might not know, younger listeners or, or US listeners, you're from the Shankill Road in Belfast, which was like a really strongly loyalist part of Belfast and, and Northern Ireland during the Troubles, you know, essentially pro British. But there you were carrying the flag for Ireland. So I am curious, did you ever get any kind of repercussions or blowback for carrying the Irish flag when you got back home? Never. No, I heard, I heard rumblings when I was in Seoul that people give my family hassle, but that was all, that was all mm. made up stuff. Mm. And, and then when I went back home, you know, if they, if they had a problem with it, when I got back home, they had a, they had a party for me. They, they, I've been lived in the, just outside the Shanga Road and they, they got the Shanga Road Defenders flute band a loyalist band to walk me down, to put me in the back of the bus and drove me down to the, the Rangers supporters club. You can't get any more loyalists than them, two things. Right. And they, they had a, a celebration for me and I didn't get a medal, but they still celebrated me going to the Olympics. So just from somebody from going to the Olympics from an era like that was like a big thing. And gotcha. as I say, um, nobody never had a problem with it. Nobody's ever said anything. And then I got to carry the Olympic torch in 2012 up to Shanko Road. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was thousands of people turned out for that too. So the tra- I think the bitterness, the Trinity got away from the area of Shanko. It's known for bombs, people being killed, and um, terrorism. So it was a positive thing, carrying the, the flag for the Shanko, and then, of course, the Olympic torch too. And you did get a medal uh, four years later in Barcelona. You won the silver, uh, losing in the final to Joao Casamayor. What memories stand out about your second time at the Olympics and, and that final match against Casamayor? Well, say the first Olympics, you know, I, I still wanted to get a medal, but I was young. You know, I had, I had 12 knockouts in a row at, at the senior level. And um, I thought I still could get a medal, but going to the Olympics, I needed to get the experience. And four years later, when I just turned 22, that was, you know, five fights. Actually, I had to qualify then back in 88, you won the nationals. And then you went to the Olympics, but then 92, because of the, the Russian breakup in, in Germany and stuff, that you had to qualify to 32 boxers in each weight class. So I fought, I won the nationals, and I, I went to Germany and fought four fights in four days, won all in, and then I went to Seoul and I had five fights in two weeks. And of course, it all comes down to the draw when you get to the Olympics, and you're hoping you get a, a nice draw, but of course, 
And my set of the draw, I got the world champion and world number two, and then the, the Commonwealth gold medalist, the bantamweight. I won the Commonwealth gold in flyweight. I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is good. But <laughs> I took one fight at a time, you know, and um, I got to the final and lost a, a close fight to Joel Casimir, who's my good friend now. He lives in Las Vegas. <laughs> That's that's cool that you that you went on to become friends. Now, uh, for for uh, a yank like me, uh, when I think of the '92 Olympics, the first thing I think of is is the U.S. basketball dream team. Um, did uh, that basketball team? Did that mean anything to a kid from Ireland? Like, what was trying to spot Michael Jordan in the athletes' village a, a big deal? Yeah, well, you see, in the, in the village, you see everybody. You know, it's it's just some of the, the big mega stars maybe staying on a, like at a hotel somewhere. With their wow. security and stuff, but but uh, you know, Carl Lewis. I looked up at Carl Lewis back in '88. I seen him mm-hmm. and um, Sergio Buka, the pole vaulter and stuff. Mm-hmm. I used to, I love I love track and field, and um, I loved. I actually wanted to watch it too when I was in, in Barcelona, and um, to see all these celebrities walking past you and as a kid, and you look at these people thinking, "Wow, this is unbelievable." Mm-hmm. But then you got to realize it. Oh, I'm competing in the Olympics too, so <laughs> no, it's a reality check, but but. It's an experience of a lifetime just to just to be an Olympian. It's just an experience. It, it's hard to explain. It's really when you get the Olympics, it's maybe ten thousand athletes every four years. Mm. It's not that many when you think about the whole world. So just to get to get the two Olympics was was never my dream was to get the Olympics. It was at fifteen, and um, then win the WBC belt. But I got to go to two Olympics and win the WBC belt. <laughs> <laughs> not bad. <laughs> I um I read this article in a in a British paper just the other day, and it was talking to a bunch of British Olympians and asking them what they did with their medals. And an awful lot of them said, "Oh, I just keep it in a sock drawer somewhere and take it out occasionally." If I had ever won an Olympic medal, I'd like have it on the wall with a bunch of spotlights on it. I mean, <laughs> what what do you do with yours? Well, the truth is, with mine, it was um, first of all before I left to come here was with my parents. <laughs> And um, I was onto the sofa or something. <laughs> <laughs> when I came here, I, I didn't really display it. I had I used to have my my belts, um, my medals come off gold and, and silver and stuff. I used to have in a, a bag in the closet. That's really yeah. what I really did. I had a bag in the closet, and um, my wife said, "You need to display these." I'm like, "Okay." And then when I put them out on the display, anybody who visited the house are like gobsmacked, like, "What is this? Oh, can I touch your medal? Can I touch it? Can I touch the medal?" <laughs> like. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. you put it on. They're like, I can put it on. <laughs> like, like, it's just, it's hard to explain. When you do something, you do something, make history. But, you know, we're, a lot of people are not really, oh, show this and show that. Although even these pictures in the background of my gym here, they're, mm-hmm. they're my old pictures of posters. I don't want to put them up. I was like, put them up. It's all you. It's history for people. It's fights. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> so when people come into my gym to train, I'm like, I'm not trying to be like, I'm, I'm somebody I'm like, no, this is awesome to see them pictures. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not that type of person. I, mean. <laughs> I might have been one of those people who desperately wanted to put a medal on, actually. <laughs> medal around your neck, belt around your waist, belt yeah. your shoulder. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Is it fair to say, I mean, even everything that you had in your pro career as well, and like you said, you won the title, had some great fights. Does the Olympics really stand out for you as like one of the pinnacles of your career? It does. It, it does in a way because... Um, Anybody who's in their 30s and older right now, remember where they were when they won the Olympic medal number one for us back in 92. They will say, I remember I was at such a such pub. I was like 18 years old or something. I'm like, okay. Or 
somebody who was who's was probably 10 years old who are now in their 30s would say, I remember watching my mom and dad watching television, cheering you on. I'm like, fantastic. So mm-hmm. when they go to the Olympics, the whole country gets behind you because everybody doesn't watch boxing. But when it comes to the Olympics, I think everybody sits down and watches the Olympics. So it's, it's all yeah. different sports. So you get that bigger audience and you become popular around like the whole of Ireland, North, South, East, West was like celebrating for six months afterwards. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and they never forget, the Irish never forget. Right. So, so as Kieran mentioned when he was introducing you, Wayne, uh, that, that this year's Olympics are, are quite a bit different. You know, watching this year's opening ceremony, you see everyone file into a, a mostly empty stadium. How much do you think that diminishes the experience for these Olympians? And, and do you expect it'll affect the boxers' performances competing without crowds? Well, it's tough. I watched some of the boxing last night. The Ireland got the first boxer won his, won his first fight, so he's in the final 16 now. So, but it was like a sparring session. You know, it's like some, it's like training in this gym here mm-hmm. with your coach there and, and your the other guys' coach, and, and it's it's pretty much dead. So, you just, but they just got to focus and try to put that in their head and say, just say it's just like training in the gym, and they got to just think of I'm in the gym, I can perform in the gym, I can perform in the, in the ring here, although there's no fans. And, you know, COVID has just destroyed the whole world, you know what I mean? Not just, just parts of the world. And we all thought coming to the Olympics that it was going to be fans allowed. But then all of a sudden there's this new spike and then all of a sudden you're not allowed to watch it. So and for Japan to put this Olympics on still, I, I take my hat off to them because it was big in Japan, you know what I mean? COVID was big. But they went ahead with it and um, all the precautions are being made to keep it safe and stuff like that. So I think they're doing the right thing. It should have, it should have took place and it is taking place. So it's, it's good that, it's, that they're going to pay with it. Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is to develop a good amateur and a good Olympic boxing program for a country to have like successful pro boxers? Like it feels like the UK boxing scene really took off again after the 2012 Olympics and all that amateur success there. Yeah, well, I think um, Ireland have the... the the special training for, you know, put like this, if you're, if you're an amateur in Ireland now, you, you can make 90 grand a year. It's not bad. You know, be a full-time amateur. When I was doing it, we, had, we were making peanuts. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was getting, I keep, we're getting $250 a month of them, but that was nothing mm-hmm. compared to what they're getting today. And I say we were, we performed, we got a gold and a silver and, and sold, which is the best Olympics we ever had for, for men. Gold, like say Kitty Taylor went on to win gold and they got a couple of bronze at one as well. But, you know, there's a lot of money involved in boxing and the special training helps the fighters to develop and um, become better. But in Ireland, to say, we, in 92, we had a, a Cuban coach, Nicholas Cruz Hernandez, who I believe is the best coach Ireland's ever had. He, he trained us for Seoul as well. And he actually, he's a citizen in Ireland as well right now. He, but they, for some reason, they kicked him out. And um, Nicholas Cruz is the best coach Ireland's ever had, but they kicked him away. He was almost like a semi-pro um, the way the Cubans are the best amateur in the world. So they're, they're trained like semi-pros. And that's what he did with us. Mm-hmm. So when they have that special training, that's why Ireland's, Ireland's won half the medals at the Olympics in boxing. You know, so we're always successful. You know, boxing, we've all come from working class neighborhoods and um, we, we reduce medals. Following on from that, you know, while things are on the uptick uh, with, with the UK amateur program and, and uh, pro success that has followed, there's no denying that with each passing Olympics here in America, the boxing team 
matters less and less. Uh, you know, just being on the team used to guarantee you a push when you turn pro. And if you won a gold medal, you were an instant star when you turn pro. Does it sadden you at all as a boxing fan and, and former Olympian living in America to see its importance decline in this way? It does because it's staying in, in Barcelona. You had right after my flight took place, Oscar De La Hoya stepped in the ring. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was a golden boy even before he turned pro because I fought on a, a European team first in North America in 1990 in Salt Lake City. And um, Oscar was on the team then. He was like 17. And um, he was a star then, a future star. And I say they kept him till the Olympics in 92 and he reduced the gold. And, and you could see the, the development over the years. But that's no, like, even when you, were, when you were in Barcelona and Seoul, you had all these promoters all around the fighters before he won medals. I had that in 92. Before I won a medal, I had a promoter, you know, say it was interested in signing with them. So you're thinking, even before you won a medal, they're interested, like that's mm-hmm. something. But that doesn't happen anymore. You know, it's unfortunate because most Olympic gold medals from the USA or even silver, silver, once he won silver, like, you know, Roy Jones got robbed, of course, in Seoul. I was there and he got robbed. Virgil Hill won a silver medal. Riddick Bohr won a silver medal and they all became world champions. Michael Carbohol, who was sold an idiot in my weight class, um, he, he won a silver medal and he became a world champion. So there's success for the silver and gold medalists went on, going on to become world champions. Even Chris Bird, he won silver in 92. Right. And um, he was a world heavyweight champion. He won a middleweight silver medal and he became heavyweight. <laughs> So there's always been success for, for the boxers from the USA. So I can't understand why there's, it's not the same as what used to be. It's, it's weird. You know, it's weird. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, sir, which is weird. <laughs> it has changed a lot. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what you're up to these days. Uh, we recently saw you in the corner of Jason Quigley against uh, Shane Mosley Jr. Um, who else are you training and what else are you up to in Vegas these days? Well, Jason Quigley was a last minute thing of the week the week of the fight because Andy Lee's as coach couldn't get out of the country of Ireland hmm. because of COVID. And um, I've known Jason since 2010. So we knew each other. I was in California a few years. We used to have coffee together and he was going to train with me before he left. He, but he was homesick. He trained with me for like a week and then he's like, I'm homesick. I'm sorry. And, and I said, you need to go back home. So he went, he went back home and say he's more comfortable. And then they asked me to work with him the last week and, and against Shane Mosley Jr., and great fight, close fight. And um, I was honored to be even asked to be in the corner. And I said to him, I'd love to be part of your team in the future because most of his fights are going to be here anyway. Right. With Golden Boy. So I think he, he could train back home and then finish off four weeks over here or something. You know, and he's, he's not away from his, his girlfriend that long in the homesick. <laughs> you know, but, he, but Jason's a great guy. I'm saying, I'm training, I train, I've got three pros at the minute. I train in here. And, um, I have a bunch of amateurs, a bunch of masters, amateurs who are over 35 years old. We're going to have, some of them are going to have their first fights in Las Vegas in September. And you can fight in the masters in the USA boxing, 35 and older, any age. My oldest, my oldest is 66. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but his back can fight like crazy and he's got defense, he's doing this and stuff. <laughs> and the guy's got more money than us three can count. And, and like, <laughs> he's a multi-millionaire, but a great guy. And, um, He's looking forward to his first fight in, in September. I've got, I've got two women fighting. 
and three guys fighting all over 35. <laughs> wow. Oh. Never too old, never too old. Well, you, you say that, but I don't know. I'm thinking uh, here as you're talking that, yeah, Kieran and I, theoretically, we, we could do it, but uh, no, nope, doesn't, doesn't, well, I don't think that's in either of our future. You guys can come here to Las Vegas and train this ring right here. <laughs> <laughs> if you promise to take it very easy on us, maybe no, we'll give gonna a shot. each other. Yeah. Wayne's concepts of going very easy on us is not our concept of going no, very probably easy. not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's uh, what what you're up to uh, at the moment, training uh, all these uh, fighters, pro and amateur. Um, now, not too long ago, uh, when I was an editor at the Ring, uh, you Wayne were one of the writers that I edited. You wrote Ringside Reports on a lot of the Vegas fights. Yeah. Are you are you still doing any writing? I love I love doing the, the fight reports for Ring, and I was writing for Sky Sports as well. But you know, Ring they just didn't need me anymore. You know, so I was I was disappointed because Thomas Thomas Heiser, you know Thomas Heiser, yeah, yeah. He he, he approached. I know Thomas really well, but he approached me one time at the at the the fights when he had some guy. He said, "This guy's a fan of yours." I'm like, "Oh," so he said, "Enough, enough for that for your Ring reports." He loves your Ring reports. I'm like, <laughs> what? "No man," but I think it was easy riding Ring because it was like. As a fighter, you see things in the in the reports, and they're and they're short, they're short and sweet, of course. But you can describe things that you know that, that you see and, and what the other guys doing and stuff. And I enjoyed that. And say with the Sky Sports, I was doing they they cut back. It was about five years ago. They cut back on their on their staff and stuff. And they and I have cut back even more on their commentating. So because Eddie Hearn's all with his own eye, so that's guy. So it's cut back. But I'm not saying I'm not saying never I'll never write again because I, I wrote my own autobiography. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love writing, but I love training people. Right. I could probably okay. do both because there's plenty of time, but you know, I'm hoping my book turns into a movie, you know, so that would be the, the thing because there's a lot of stuff in it. Did you, in a book, Kieran knows, in a book, you, you touch things, but you don't sort of expand on too much because you, you've got so many words you have to write. But Kieran knows my background and where I came from, and I've probably told him about certain things that I was involved, not involved in, but could have been involved in in Northern Ireland. Growing up as a kid and the terrorism and seeing people being shot or kneecapped and stuff like that. So when you touch the stuff like that and put it in, your, in a movie, then it could be fantastic. It's almost like when I see the Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford in the Devil's Own movie. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. The Devil's Own started in Belfast, actually, about terrorism, shooting, bum, bum, bum. Then Brad Pitt comes to America and stays with Harrison Ford. And, and it's almost like that was the way my life was, like shooting bombs going off all the time. And when I see the start of that movie, I was thinking it's almost like the start of my own, my, my movie because mm-hmm. I really seen that stuff. I've seen people being shot dead. I've seen people being naked. I've seen all the, the terrorism around my neighborhood, but I stayed away from it, you know? And unfortunately, my friends got involved, but the same, my friends would still talk to me when I'm back home and take pictures and stuff. So I understand the, the choice you had back then. You didn't have much of a choice. I had boxing and they had nothing else. Yeah, I mean, you're the great example, aren't you? You know, we often talk about how boxing is a real way out of difficult situations for a lot of kids. I mean, you're a classic example, especially growing up in Jankill, that had you not had boxing, I mean, who knows where things would have ended up, eh? They call me classic. When Eddie Fudge was my coach at the pro, which is unbelievable, and when they first came to Belfast in 93, they, that's when it was still the, the troubles were still at their high. The British soldiers walking the streets and stuff with their guns and patrollers everywhere getting searched going to the airport. And Eddie was like, You see my neighborhood? And he's like, How did you live here? I'm like, 
What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? <laughs> but your guys, like I fell, fell, fell towards all with them. He was Eddie's understudy, and and they came from like bad areas in LA. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with this area? This is worse than we were. We came from like really. <laughs> so they called the ghetto. We didn't call it ghetto. But they said this is a ghetto. And I'm like, oh, probably is, yeah. <laughs> right. And my wife Cheryl, she came from East Belfast, which is a nicer neighborhood. I called a snobby neighborhood. And um, when she met me, it was like, how did you live here? I'm like, what's what's the matter with it? Because when you grow up that when you grow up in that area, you just realize. You know everybody and there's you know it's 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 okay it's just normal life right you know it's not for me it was normal life didn't have anything my parents were unemployed didn't didn't really you know need anything but it had food on the table and stuff like that that's all i needed right. and um but boxing was my way out because i always thought with all the trouble going on the shootings and stuff i always stood at the front door and i always thought there's got to be some bad in this because why are we fighting for what are we, what are we fighting for that person's the same as me and they're the same as me. So I just couldn't understand the religious divide, but that's something that you can't explain to certain people. And I say the bitterness on both sides still, and I say the religious divide is, is going to continue. Although they have the peace for the last 20 years, they have the wall still there, take the wall down, you know? Yeah. yeah. Because if there's peace, like the Berlin Wall, they take it down, don't they? But they have the peace wall in Northern Ireland still standing. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're, the tourists go there now even, don't they? Uh, let's, let's actually finish with a couple of questions about your pro career. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm curious what you consider your best win or your best couple wins. Like if somebody said to you, Wayne, you know, I'd never saw you fight live. If I go to YouTube, what are the fights of Wayne McCulloch that I should look up? What would you tell them? I'd probably say... It's people, it's debatable with people because some people say I'm wrong. <laughs> but my own my own choice. But I think going to Japan was a major thing because I didn't know I didn't know this until Randall Monroe fought over there be 15 years after I, I won. And I didn't know at the time that I was going to be the, the first ever fighter from Ireland or UK ever to go to Japan and win a world championship because it was so hard to get the season. Mm. And um, I was the underdog and out there and Ireland and England and the UK, but the Americans had me ahead or just a slight favor because I, I was based here fighting here. And then um, I go over there and I beat the world champion in his home, not his home, just his home country, his home city. And he was making the fifth defensive belt. And I, I'd probably say that was probably the, the greatest win of my, my career, really, because it was, it was something that I didn't know. I, I didn't know I was going to make history. I, wasn't, I didn't find out until later on. But when I did it, I was so determined to do it. And Eddie, Eddie had the game plan to do it, and we did it. And I think that achievement was, alone was just going against the odds when you're not supposed to win and then do it. It's like a big, big thing. So I'll probably say that was probably the, the biggest, biggest one of my career. Mm-hmm. But other fights, say even, even with Hamid, you know, Hamid, Hamid ran for 12 rounds, but my fight with Morales was a toe-to-toe battle for 12 rounds. He had a great fight. And, he had a close fight, real close fight, and he called me a crazy local guy. <laughs> but um, him and them fights, people are, people look at them fights today. Young kids who they were too young then would watch them fights and say, "That fight, fights were unbelievable! Wow, that fights had you!" I'm like, "What? You weren't even born?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's fights like that. People, it's like a tour guy to make you war. You know, especially the first and second fights. There are fights that people are going to watch it. Corrales Castillo, that fight, unbelievable. You know, um, Hagler Hearns, 
there's fights like that that people are going to watch in generations to come. And as I say, the young people, if people are 20 years old watching my fights, they won't even bomb when I won the world championship. So, mm. but they're, they become fans of you. That's how you become known forever. You know what I mean? Because people in 50 years might turn on a fight and think, oh, unbelievable fight. And things like that. See, Japan, when I won the fight in Japan, it was, of course, Japanese people all around the world then respected me as a person and probably, probably know me as well. So I think that was probably the biggest thing in my career. Mm-hmm. And that, that Hamed fight that you mentioned, uh, that was uh, in Atlantic City, and I was ringside for that one, actually. And um, that was a fight in which, you know, Hamed was this amazing puncher uh, known for his power. And uh, he, he never hurt you at all that, that we could tell. And uh, that was one of the fights that uh, when I was an editor at the ring, I think this was in 2000 or so, we wrote an article on the best chins in boxing and <laughs> partially because of that fight and the Morales fight. Oh, got the thing on my wall. Yeah. Oh yeah, that, the art, yeah, okay. Uh, so yeah, we, we, if, in case people don't know, we ranked you as the number one chin in boxing coming off those fights. Um, but it was actually as I was reading and editing that story that I learned about one time that you got your chin severely tested against Victor Rabanales. Uh, it's an amazing story. Do you mind uh, retelling that story of, of what happened when he landed a clean one against you? Well, thanks for giving me the best chin in boxing. But Victor Rabanales, he's a, Victor Rabanales is a former world champion and he was number one contender still for the WBC belt. And that was in June of 94. Um, I fought him in Atlantic City in the Trump Taj Mahal. <laughs> I fought him there, um, and I've, I've only been pro since February of 93. So you're talking like well, 18 months later. And I'm, I was number one contender after a fight. But he had 50 fights and I had um, my 13th. And we knew it was going to be a tough fight. But Eddie, Eddie wanted it. Eddie said we, it's a 50-50 fight. And we, wanna, we need to win this fight to get to the belt. I actually had the NBF belt. I was defending. It was probably the hardest NBF defense in history against him. And then we were fighting for the number one position. But, wow, he hit me. I think it was the third round. He hit me with a, I think it was an overhand right that turned into an uppercut. <laughs> and he, had, he was a small guy, but he had these long arms. And then he was really good. Boom, and then boom, the middle. And he hit me with the shot. And I swear I was watching television with my wife in the hotel room. And I've never been, like, that was the first, the only time I've ever been on my feet. But my legs stayed strong. You know, I was out on my feet, but I was, I thought I was watching television in the hotel room. And then when it came around, I did see flashing lights and like two, two guys in front of me. And I remember if you watch the fight, I went against him, like not a two, he didn't even have a clue, but he hurt me. <laughs> and then let's say the rest of the fight, I, I, I started boxing a little bit too and beat him in the last couple round by boxing. But that was a learning experience because I think every, every world champion should have that test. And he was a world champion, I say number one contender. So he wasn't even done yet. He was still he still fought for a while after that. But it was a hard test, and um, Eddie wanted me to have that test. And I came through it and I say it was the only person ever to have me on my feet. And he didn't even know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's remarkable to be feeling that way and be able to cover oh. it up enough that the guy can't tell. I mean, how yeah. how how long was it? Do you like do you know about how many seconds you were that out of it? Well, for me, I was watching TV. It seemed, seemed like a lifetime. <laughs> right. But it's almost like, I say, I've never been knocked on the canvas before, but that's probably what you feel like when you're knocked out. It's just a canvas, and all of a sudden, you don't know what's going on, and then, and then you wake up and you see two people. Mm-hmm. But So I don't really, you know, it was, I don't remember getting hit with the heart. The shot didn't seem hard to me, because I just, all of a sudden, I'm just watching TV. 
Wow. It was weird. It was a weird feeling, but I remember that. I, was, I say I put in my book and stuff. It was a weird feeling, but but a learning experience because I, I was inexperienced. I was trying to perfect the cross guard, and I hadn't just perfected it yet. And um, I was probably doing this instead of this, mm-hmm. and because it takes a long time to perfect that. And and then I get hit with a shot. And then after that, I didn't get hit with a shot. So <laughs> <laughs> it, took me to, it took me to get put on, on my feet before I learned a lesson. Right. But but I was okay. I said I recovered and came back and I, I won the fight. A good, great fight, 12 rounds. And um, it was, a great, I say, a great learning experience. Victor Ravenel's, I'd say, the great fighter. And every, every world champion needs that big test. Hey, Wayne, look, man, it's been great to have you on the podcast. I really appreciated it. It's great to talk to you again. Uh, enjoy the Olympics and here's to a great season coming up for Liverpool. Yes, it really? There he is. <laughs> Putting on the <laughs> Liverpool cap. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys <laughs> thanks, thanks so much, so much Wayne. Wayne what a delight to chat with Wayne uh, thanks again to him for carrying the show here uh, in a slow boxing <laughs> week um, and now it's time for the tweet of the week and kind of slow there as well I didn't spot too much great Twitter work in the boxing community this week but here goes with the best I found it comes from Ismail Abdusalam whose Twitter handle is at Ismail underscore BBM underscore NYK. Uh, He tweeted an image of a graphic that I guess he saw while rewatching old fights on YouTube. It's a graphic that I imagine aired during a James Tony fight in the 90s. It says James Tony's favorites movies, Robocop and marked for death music, rap and contemporary hobby, basketball and bowling hero, Thomas Hearns. And uh, Ismail tweeted that with the simple comment, James Tony is a man of taste. Uh, it's a quality conversation starter tweet, at the very least. Um, before I get to your reaction, I'll, uh, I'll give my uh, impressions of, of Tony's taste. Uh, kind of a mixed bag for me. Uh, I liked RoboCop at the time. I watched it over and over because we had it on VHS. Uh, but it was never quite a favorite movie of mine. And Marked for Death, I famously watched that for the first time a couple of years ago to podcast about it with BC and Rafe, and oh, I thought it was—I thought it was trash. Although, admittedly, I bring an anti-Segal bias to the table. Um, rap is not really my bag. I'm not sure what James Tony means by contemporary music. Uh, I do like playing basketball, but I can't stand bowling. It is one of those activities. Oh that always feels like it's going to be fun. And then after about three or four rolls, you're bored and you're very glad there's beer around. Um, but, uh, but where Tony has my full support is on Tommy Hearns as his hero. Uh, no arguments there. So uh, Kieran, any thoughts on the tweet or on James Tony's tastes? Yeah. So I guess, I guess it depends how old the graphic is. I think you can be forgiven for listing RoboCop as one of your favorite movies in, say, 1991. If you're still doing it in 2021, <laughs> then I probably have a bit of an issue. You know, if, it, if it, right right in the, you know, after, I can't remember when it came out. Is it late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, I'm going to say like 87 or so yeah. would be my guess. Yeah, so okay, you could get away with it then. But now, yeah, that's like, movies have moved on. <laughs> you're saying it hasn't aged too well. <laughs> well, just that, you know, there's plenty of others to choose from. Okay. But, uh, gosh, am I ever with you on bowling? Lord have mercy. <laughs> I, uh, oh, a number of times where, yeah, I've had people in the very, very rare occurrences when I actually had a job where I'd be like, hey, let's go bowling. It'll be great. It was never great. 
it was just yeah. never great. No. There was beer, thank heavens, but it was never great. <laughs> yes. I mean, the, I, I don't know why you can't just have the beer. Why do you have to have the bowling detracting from the beer? And the beer is really, like, great. Right. Yeah, it's it, you're, it's usually some kind of low-level light beer that you're having, you know, pouring it out of a pitcher into a cup. It's not it's not usually the, the highest of quality beer, but the idea is, I think, that even the people running the bowling alleys realize anything is better than bowling. Let's give them crappy beer and they'll appreciate it. It does remind me of a brief story, though, oh, which, okay. because it's a very slow week, I think yes. we have... We I'll have indulge you, yes. Um, so at Fantasy Springs... Uh, casino there is sort of tucked away uh, just off the uh, the casino floor there is actually a bowling alley and after some fight I honestly can't remember which um, all the normal like bars and whatever in the casino were full and Edmore Holland and Kevin Flaherty and I Kevin knew the place quite well he goes oh there's a small little bar in the bowling alley hmm. so we go and we actually managed to find like get a drink there anyway so at some point I'm going to the bathroom because of all the beer and I come out and there is some there are these two guys there who have been playing who've been bowling and are wasted right <laughs> which is like the only way you could possibly want to be doing bowling is like they're absolutely wasted obviously boxing fans one of them sees me come out of the bathroom and he's like oh oh my god it's, it's you I gotta I gotta I I gotta take take photograph. Gotta take photograph. <laughs> like, sure, man. <laughs> Whatever. That's that's great. And we take a photograph, and his friends like, oh, wait, I, I gotta I gotta take a photograph to take a photograph with me. And you take a photograph, and the other guy goes, I, uh, who are you? <laughs> wait, the first the first guy the, who spotted you. Guy. Oh, okay, the second, the second guy. guy. All right. Yeah, yeah. But I'm <laughs> sure, like the next morning, at least one of the guys was waking up and looking through his phone and going, what the hell? <laughs> this guy where right. is he in my photographs this is the level of celebrity that we have achieved yes. just enough that once in a blue moon someone will recognize you but not quite know why he recognizes exactly you. it's like hey it's 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 you that guy yeah there you go yep. all right time for some outside the ring news and our main event this week combines two pieces of developing news surrounding the two fighters most experts rank as the top two pound for pound in the sport. Canelo Alvarez and Terence Crawford. Uh, we've known for a while that Caleb Plant was the top contender for a Canelo fight in September. Mike Coppinger reported last week that according to unnamed sources, the fight is indeed being finalized for September 18th in Las Vegas on Fox pay-per-view. A one-fight deal for Canelo with PBC that he would be choosing over a proposed fight on DAZN versus Dimitri Bivol. Uh, meanwhile, Crawford, whose quality of opposition of late has been much maligned, was ordered last week by the Alphabet group whose welterweight belt he holds to face mandatory challenger Sean Porter. Uh, no update yet on progress toward that fight being made. So, Eric, thoughts on these potential matchups? How stiff are these tests on paper for the pound-for-pounders? Uh, do you expect both fights to happen? And how do you see Canelo Plant doing on pay-per-view? So just a six-part question. <laughs> okay, just six. Okay. Um, so the part that I'll take first is uh, whether I expect both fights to happen. I do. Um, I, I hate alphabets. You hate alphabets. It's a shame that it should take an alphabet mandate to get Crawford to fight someone good. But in this case, let's acknowledge it. An alphabet is doing something good for the fans. And both fighters have said they want it. So... I would guess the promotional and broadcast issues will get worked out and we will see that fight. And Canelo Plant, in terms of that happening, as weird as it is that a reporter can't get sources on the record to say a fight we all know has been in the works for a while is likely to happen. You know, these sources aren't exactly deep throat here, uh, <laughs> right. but, but I am sure the sources are trustworthy in this case and it is just about done. Canelo has all sorts of options. 
I don't think Plant is anyone's absolute number one, but he's in everyone's top five, I think, for who they'd like to see Canelo face. It's a, it's a very, very good fight along the same lines as Callum Smith and Billy Joe Saunders, you know, a real championship level fighter who figures to be overmatched against Canelo, but you never know. I would say Canelo and Crawford are similar level favorites in these fights. I, I'd be about 85% sure that each guy will win, but, you know, 15% chance of an upset. That's not nothing. Um, as for the question of how Canelo Plant will do on pay-per-view, Plant is a prop, basically. He's uh, he's like the guy in the porno. He's there to serve a purpose, but he's not driving the clicks. Um, this is uh, basically the, the standard question of, how many pay-per-views does Canelo sell versus any old challenger at this point in his career, right? Plant is worthy of being on pay-per-view with him. You know, this isn't Avni Yildirim, which you'd have a hard time convincing anyone to pay for, but this isn't Triple G, a guy who has his own fan base and some mainstream appeal. So the question is, how many pay-per-views can Canelo sell versus a good fighter that casual fans don't really know anything about? And... I'd say he's probably not breaking a million buys, but that he's probably going to come fairly close. If I had to set the line, I'd say something like 800,000 pay-per-views. So I don't know. Is that, is that a good line or, or is it a line that you'd have an easy time going over or under when I set that number? I think I might go over just because it's like you said, it, it has nothing to do with who's on the other side of the mm-hmm. equation. And I just think, you know, with Fox getting really behind it, right. um, it, it is Canelo. Uh it's, I could see him just getting close to or exceeding a million almost against anybody mm-hmm. at this point. But I think it would be an interesting one because, yes, I mean, very few people know who Caleb Plant is. Um, but he talks well. You know, he'll do his part in, in holding up the promotion. I would take the over. Not okay. with extreme confidence, but right. I would take the over myself. Okay. Um, so not a whole lot on the news undercard this week. Uh, so I'll throw in one fight to preview uh, along with the news items. That fight is welterweight prospect Connor Ben meeting gatekeeper Adrian Granados in Brentwood, England, Saturday with DAZN carrying it. The most noteworthy fight of the weekend ahead, which tells you how slow the schedule is. Um, a major fight that we've discussed a few times is now official. Anthony Joshua meets Alexander Usyk September 25th at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, as we expected. I hesitate to share this next piece of news, but I guess I have to. Oscar De La Hoya versus Vitor Belfort taking place September 11th, the same date as a very real and very excellent Showtime fight card headlined by the tremendous Stephen Fulton, Brandon Figueroa matchup we discussed last week with Tom Brown. Uh, De La Hoya Belfort is officially a sanctioned boxing match, not an exhibition. Although they'll only be fighting two minute rounds in this eight rounder with a weight range, not exactly weight limit, but weight range of 180 pounds plus or minus five pounds. So it sounds a lot like an exhibition, but it's not an exhibition. Um, And lastly, two pieces of sad news to share, two deaths in the boxing community. Former super middleweight title challenger, Andre Taise of South Africa died of COVID-19 at the far too young age of 52. And Australian promoter Bill Tracy died at age 74 after what was termed a long illness. Tracy promoted the likes of Daniel Giel, Billy Dibb, and Lovemore Endo. Our condolences to the families of both Taise and Tracy. Uh, Kieran, anything you'd like to comment on among these assorted items? 
uh, obviously to support what you said about Tyson and Tracy. I mean, 52, goodness me, that's just, it's, like you said, far, far too young. Um, as for the boxing news, the main thing to comment on is Joshua Usyk. Uh, we know it's been on the cards a while. It's good to have it confirmed. And we'll talk about it more near the time. But I do think this is a really dangerous fight for Joshua. Um, mm. You know, oddly, even though Joshua is much better than Derek Chisora, Chisora's size and go for broke almost like go for it for three rounds and then hang on for the rest of the fight kind of fighting style may have proven more difficult and challenging for for Usyk in some ways than Joshua who will attempt more conventionally to box him um so I do think it's a really genuinely very interesting fight we've talked about it before um that it's one of the things that may yet put the kibosh on uh, uh Joshua and Fury but I do note that it is clearly now possible to hold heavyweight title fights, heavyweight title fights involving Anthony Joshua even, in the United Kingdom, <laughs> in soccer stadiums, in front of very large crowds. Hmm. So let's not pretend that that's not a factor when and if Joshua and Fury negotiations do resume. So um, if you're going to take it to certain other countries, just be upfront about the reason why you're <laughs> taking it to certain other countries. Um, and as for Deloia Belfort... I guess we'll cover it during uh, nearer the time, but uh, oof. that's all I've got to say. It's just oof. <laughs> that should be the tagline on the poster. <laughs> oof. Yeah, it's a winner. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's finish the show with your next top five list assignment. And we're sticking with the Olympics theme. Uh, a fairly straightforward best of list, but it's going to take some thinking, some weighing of factors, etc. I would like you to rank the best U.S. Olympic teams based not on how they fared in the Olympics, but based on how they did collectively as pros. Uh, and I'm going to give it a time frame, 1960 to present. So you don't need to do all time and go way, way back. I feel like 1960, when uh, some fella named Cassius Clay won gold in Rome, that was kind of the dawn of the modern Olympic boxing era. Uh, obviously, you're not using the 2020 or 2021, whatever sure. we want to call them, team, since we don't know yet how they've done as pros. And let's cross off the 2016 team also. It's very early in their pro careers. We don't need to project how good Shakur Stevenson and his teammates will be. Sure. And they certainly aren't getting near anyone's top five based on what they've done so far. So it cuts off with the 2012 team. Um, and um, I'll, I'll say that the I think the way to do this is to keep the women's team separate. We're, we're just counting the U.S. men's team uh, from each of those years. I will allow the 1980 team to count. They didn't compete in the Olympics, but there was a U.S. team, gotcha. and uh, we're judging them based on their professional accomplishments. So include 1980 if you like. So that gives you 14 teams to consider from 1960 to 2012. I want you to rank the five best. Uh, how highly you rank a team that produced one super-duper star and not much else versus a team that produced several excellent pro champions, that's up to you. Um, it will take some research just to look up the rosters, but I don't think you'll have to research the fighters much. You know, if there's right. some dude on the 64 team you've never heard of, chances are he didn't do much as a pro. Um, so there's your assignment. Any questions? No, you actually uh, anticipated the the one question that I was going to have, which is like, how you know, is there a way to weight these these teams? So right. yes, but you did you did answer that. So yes, so the nineteen sixty teams off to a good start. <laughs> it is, uh, but uh, well, my, mild spoiler. Nineteen eighty four coming up. 
coming up hard on the rails, I would say. But um, yeah, but and, yes, but there's there's plenty to look at there. So all right, okay. yeah, I I almost started to say a little something about the 1960 team, but we'll save it for next week. I'll, I'll be curious to hear your analysis and, <laughs> and your rankings. Okay, that'll be fun. Yeah, we're gonna squeeze the life out of these Olympic games. <laughs> May as well. <laughs> exactly. This stopping us from having any pro boxing, but there you go. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, and our. Big thanks again to Wayne McCulloch for joining us. Uh, we don't anticipate a Money Punch podcast this Friday, or indeed any other bonus pods. Yep, that's it. We're back to one pod a week, you poor fellows. So, um, <laughs> But you will hear next from us in one week, as we then kick off a busy month uh, of August on Showtime. Uh, until then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.